Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's the first episode of 2024, so we're looking ahead at the next 12 months with art market predictions and a guide to the big exhibitions and biennials of the year. For the past decade, Tim Schneider, the acting art market editor at the art newspaper, has made art market predictions and marked his own homework at the end of the year. We hear his thoughts on what might lie ahead for the market in 2024. Then Jane Morris, one of our editors at large, Gareth Harris, our chief contributing editor, and I select the biennials and exhibitions that we're most looking forward to in 2024. All of the shows that we'll be discussing and many more are featured in the Art Newspapers magazine The Year Ahead 2024, an authoritative guide to the world's must-see exhibitions and museum openings. Get a print and digital subscription to the Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com before 15th of February to receive your copy of The Year Ahead with your next printed issue. Or you can buy The Year Ahead magazine on its own on the website for just £9.99, which is $13.69. Do also subscribe to this podcast and to our sister podcast A Brush With, which returns on the 31st of January, wherever you're listening. Please also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, every year we attempt to predict what might be on the horizon for the art market. And this time it's the turn of our acting art market editor, Tim Schneider, who himself has long been looking into his crystal ball at the start of every year to tell us what we might expect from the coming 12 months. Tim, these market predictions are very enjoyable for the rest of us, but why are they useful for you? The thing about a good prediction is that it's ultimately trend analysis. And in order to be able to project into the future about anything that's going to have any kind of relevance, you have to really take a step back and try to figure out what the most important cross currents and dynamics and recent developments in whatever sector you're pontificating about are. And it really forces you to try to focus in on what's important and what isn't. And that's just a valuable exercise, I think, at any time of year, but especially at the beginning when you're trying to get everything set up. Absolutely. And you mark your own homework. So 2023 was actually a very successful year for you. You, I think you got 6.5 out of 8, you marked yourself. That is correct, yes. (laughs) So is that your best score yet? It is, yes. And it's funny when I talk to people about this because... There are some people who, unless I get 75% of them right or more, they're just like, oh, it was kind of a bad for year for you. And I'm like, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's, that's a, it's a pretty high bar. Uh, I, I very much look at it as if I can get like 25 to 30% of them right, that's like the floor. So anything beyond that, I think, is a bonus. And look, this is a humbling process anytime that you do it. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's a hard business and you kind of have to go into it with some humility, I think. In the article that you've done for 2024, you're saying that it's an especially fraught year for doing it because of the market correction in 2023. Can you explain a bit more about why you think that's so? So I think that this is now the third or fourth time that I've been on the podcast since joining the art newspaper Mm -hmm. midway through last year. And I'm pretty sure that the theme of almost every episode that you and I have done, Ben, is like people are uneasy and no one's really sure which way is up and what to expect and all that kind of stuff. So that just inherently makes the business of projecting into the future more difficult. Whereas if you're trying to do this in a real boom time that's been going on for a few years or conversely, 
a real rut that everyone acknowledges, it kind of makes the job easier because everyone has a fairly good sense of the landscape. And that's not to say that things can't dramatically shift at a moment's notice sometimes, but it's just a little more difficult to know what ground you're standing on when everything is kind of in motion the way that it is right now. I think you summed up 2023 and the art trade very well in your marking your homework article in which you said that 2023 was a bummer for the art world, basically, for the art market. Yeah, it was. And it's it's a funny thing, too, because it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible either. I mean, like I got my first art job in 2005, so I've been doing this for almost 20 years at this point. And having gone through something like the 2008 recession, that was really dark. And even the beginning of the COVID shutdowns, like those were really scary times for people. And there's no legitimate way that you can say that 2023 was as bad as those types of situations are as scary, but it was just uncomfortable in a way that I think people had a really hard time reconciling themselves to. And I think that there's more of that in store, frankly. Okay, but let's go ahead. We're going to go through your predictions one by one. First of all, auction sales. Now you're predicting that auction sales in 2024 will be within 4% of the 2023 total. What does that mean? So in this construct that we've now talked about, this idea of me trying to create actual benchmarks to rate my predictions against, the best way to try to do that for the market at large, or at least for the secondary market at large, is to try to look at global auction sales, meaning the dollar value of global auction sales. So in this prediction, what I'm essentially pointing towards is the idea that things are going to get a little bit better, probably, but they're not going to be dramatically better than what they are. So in this case, 4% is not a huge uptick over the value of 2023, but it is an uptick. It's kind of speaking again to this idea of, well, it's still going to be kind of soft, but it's not going to be a tragedy. Absolutely. And, and it's basically that if you're looking at global economic predictions right now, no one's predicting boom, nobody's predicting total bust, right? There's, no, there's Again, it's, it's very, very much like you were saying in the, about 2023 in the art world. There's, there's an element of stasis about what everybody's saying, but nobody's predicting terrible times, but nobody's predicting joyous times on the horizon either. Yeah. One of my favorite columnists is a guy named Derek Thompson, who writes for The Atlantic, and he did his own predictions earlier this year, and he defined the big economic theme of 2024 as the big softy, which was just this idea of everyone he talks to about growth and business and whatever else, they just keep using the word soft. Like, it's going to be, it's not going to be terrible. It's not going to be a hard fall, but it's not going to be a huge rebound. It's just going to be soft growth here and there, soft improvement here and there, all these kinds of things. And I think that my best guess is that that proves to be true in the art market as well. And it will show up, I think, most easily or at least in the most trackable form when we're looking at the dollar value of global auction sales. Right. Okay. Now, blue chip artists and the Israel Hamas war. What did you think about that? So the specific prediction I made was that we will see at least one blue chip artist split with their gallery over 
differences of opinion, let's say, about the Israel-Hamas war. And this is, again, trying to take something that I think has been one of the biggest stories in not just the art business, but the art world in a kind of broader sense from the past six months, not even six months at this point, and trying to project like what the next phase of it is going to be. So this is another case of trying to look at what the biggest trends of the past few months have been and project into the future about what the next phase will end up being. And we've already seen so many ruptures and just major disagreements and falling outs in various aspects of the art business that there isn't really that much left in terms of specific fractures but this is one of the ones that we haven't seen yet, but it seems pretty likely to me. There was an interesting thing that happened between Listen Gallery and Ai Weiwei. I think that's probably the most high-profile example where he put something out on social media and they responded by postponing shows. Other shows were cancelled apparently at other galleries. We still think that Ai Weiwei is a Listen Gallery artist. That's, that's the case at the moment. But that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? So I think there are two helpful reference points in this conversation in terms of trying to figure out what comes next. One is the Ai Weiwei and Listen situation, which you've already mentioned. And that's interesting because in that case, it is a blue chip artist and a blue chip gallery. And there's a conflict between the two of them, but the gallery isn't going to the extent of saying, okay, we're no longer going to work with you. They're kind of just saying, this was bad, and we think we need to cool out here for a minute, and then we can come back with cooler heads and continue working together. The other really, I think, noteworthy reference point in this is that there's a smaller gallery in Australia called Anna Schwartz Gallery, which, towards the very end of last year, actually did drop an artist that they had represented. His name is Mike Parr over a performance work that he did that invoked apartheid and ethnic cleansing in the context of Israel's political and military strategy in Gaza. So in that case, you actually do have a permanent split between an artist and a gallery, but the difference is that they're not at the highest level of the market. So with those two reference points in mind, it seems like the next natural step is that this is just going to escalate you. You will actually see some kind of breakup and it will actually be at the highest possible level of the market. And it's interesting with that second example, which is a gallerist who would work with an artist for decades. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a sort of fleeting engagement. This is something which had been long nourished, this relationship, and it was, it was abandoned because of this issue. So I think you're right. It feels extremely tense in the art world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's the worst... I've ever seen any issue divide people in the time that I've been doing this. I don't know. Can you think of anything in your experience that has been close to this, Ben? Absolutely not. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's this unsaid thing that we've talked about actually in the past, but also that it, it, it's simmering. It's really, it feels very, very potent and dark, as you say. So um, yeah, I think you're right with that one. A third prediction relates to Patrick Drahi, who bought Sotheby's, in 2019. What are you predicting in relation to this? So what I'm predicting here is that Patrick Drahi will sell a minority stake in Sotheby's to a private investor by the 1st of October. 
And you've done loads of research by the looks of it into this. And, and it relates not just, of course, to, to Sotheby's, but to his wider portfolio, right? Yeah, exactly. This is, to my mind, the biggest story in the art business that is just not getting the amount of attention that it deserves. And it's because in order to understand what's happening and what the potential implications are, you just have to have a broader facility with business hoarding that, frankly speaking, most people working in this industry don't have. And look, I'm not saying that I'm operating at the absolute apex of this myself. I, I think it's it's more just a matter of I'm broken in just the right way that I can get interested <laughs> in this kind of a thing. <laughs> so, so are you reading like, loads? Oh. Of, are you like reading loads of arcane financial news? Basically, is, exactly. that, is that what's happening? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I, I'm like, oh, I've never heard the term bond maturity wall before. What does that mean, and how does it impact Patrick Drahi? Oh, oh, great. Here's a chart that I can look at that makes this idea real to me. I can spend an hour on this. <laughs> Okay, gotcha. But basically, what is all this information that you've been learning telling you? So the important thing to understand about Patrick Jarahi and the way that he has amassed this incredible business empire and this incredible amount of wealth that he has is that a lot of the business empire that he has built has been fueled by debt. So he is somebody who really made the best use he could of borrowing money in a low or no interest rate environment and using that to make these kinds of big business moves. And that was great as long as interest rates remained low. And the problem is that, as most people listening to this podcast know, interest rates have risen a lot over the course of the past year and a half, two years. And that has kind of fundamentally changed the way that Drahi and his business has to operate here. The key data points are that Bloomberg reported last fall that Drahi's companies have to repay about $21.3 billion by the end of 2027 and $60 billion overall. So that's a big gap that this man has to make up. And the only way to be able to do that, frankly, is by selling off a bunch of assets. And Sotheby's is an asset within his portfolio that I think is likely to end up as a part of this grand reckoning. Right. Now, you and I have talked about the kind of battle, if you like, between Freeze and MCH Group, which is the group that owns Art Basel, for the kind of supremacy within the field of art fairs. Is this going to continue? Your fourth prediction relates to what they do next, right? Right. So one of the big stories of the art fair sector last year was that Freeze announced back in July that it was going to acquire the Armory Show and Expo Chicago, which are the two largest and most important regional art fairs in the U.S. And there's been a lot of talk about this idea of consolidation in the art fair sector, and particularly under those two companies that you talked about. But in my mind, if we're trying to look into the future, I don't think that it's going to turn out the way that a lot of people have been talking about. So my fourth prediction is that neither Freeze nor the MCH group will acquire any more regional art fairs in 2024. Why do you think that? 
So the funny thing about the art fair consolidation conversation is that most people who are looking at it semi-casually will, I think, recognize factors that are all true. They will say, look, expenses are going up. Sales at these fairs are going down. There are so many options out there if you're a dealer or a collector in terms of which fairs are even worth your time. So all of those things militate towards an outcome of just not everyone is going to survive and there's going to be easy pickings for the larger companies, larger fair organizers that have extra cash to go out and scoop up as many of these smaller fairs as they want. And again, that makes sense on one level, but the thing that I think most people are missing when they go down that road is if the business is so bad for these smaller fairs, then why would companies that are doing well want to take on their problems? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Absolutely. And you're saying that it's more likely that we might see something like what Freeze have done in London, which is actually have a gallery space in Cork Street, which is this, you know, sort of historic gallery sector, which is, again, sort of thriving with with lots of galleries moving into that territory. Right. In talking to people within the fair sector, the sense that I get is that the largest players recognize that there just isn't really any more space in the calendar. And look, I deal with this in an editorial capacity every day. Like I have a a running calendar of events month to month and I don't have enough cells in the spreadsheet then. Like it's just, there's too much. (laughs) Everyone recognizes that there's too much. And what I've heard people that I trust and people who are operating at a very high level within the fair sector say is essentially, yeah, we all understand that's the case. And we want to continue to grow, but that means that we have to find other ways to grow, other ways to kind of keep our brand at the forefront of the conversation. And I think we're just, again, at a point where more fairs is not the answer, but instead it's doing these other initiatives, whether it's partnering with galleries for these types of pop-up situations or trying new digital initiatives or any number of other things like that. Right. For your final prediction, you're kind of flipping one of your predictions from last year, which was you predicted quite correctly, and it happened almost immediately, that artists would take on AI companies who were kind of taking their their images and, and using them. This year, your view on AI and artists is somewhat different. Tell us what you think will happen. My prediction is that you will see one or more brand name artists actually strike a licensing deal with the developers of one of these AI-powered image generators that we've all spent so much time talking and thinking about over the course of the past couple of years. So basically, this would mean that an artist will see the potential of this technology, see that you cannot arrest it, and basically harness it for their own means, effectively, because it potentially could be extremely lucrative for an artist who's got their head screwed on. I think the most interesting aspect of the AI copyright war that's going on right now is that, at least in the visual art realm, it really has this kind of populism versus elitism theme to it, where that class action lawsuit that you mentioned in passing in the lead-up to this prediction was really 
generated by three artists who were just like working artists and illustrators and not people who were having museum exhibitions. They're not people who are represented by huge commercial galleries by any stretch of the imagination. And there's something important in that to me because the way that these AI image generators work is by just sucking up huge amounts of information. So just everyone who's out there and has their work online in any capacity is sort of being just sucked into the thresher. And for people who are out there struggling, trying to piece together a career in an extremely difficult field, I think that that is a really offensive and dire and kind of existential threat in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, there is so much money and so much interest and so much potential power in these algorithms and the developers of them that if you're on the other side of the divide, if you're somebody who is already prominent, who isn't worried about the last little bit of their livelihood potentially being just cratered by this new threat, I think you could potentially see it as an opportunity. And I mentioned this in the column, I think, but there's just been a long line of really high-profile artists who have been very happy to get in bed with major tech companies in one way or another. I mean, going all the way back to Andy Warhol partnering with IBM computers in the 80s. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just think that there's a way that this could be seen as a great business opportunity by somebody who, in their mind, could be the face of the next evolution of image making. And that, that's a really appealing thing. I think both of us have artists in mind <laughs> who, <laughs> right. who, who might do this. You haven't mentioned any specific artists. Are you prepared on the podcast to name anybody that you think might do it? <laughs> well, so I don't want to say specifically that it will be this person or that person, but I think that there is a type of artist that I can at least nod toward in the US. I think the first name that comes to mind is Jeff Koons. I'm sure that a number of people listening to this podcast are not going to be surprised by that particular reference point. On the other side of the Atlantic, I think a gentleman known as Damien Hurst would probably have some interest in this kind of thing. Like, I, I don't want to question his deep integrity as an artist, <laughs> but it just strikes me as that may, maybe there's a match there. I don't know. There you go. Tim, it's going to be fascinating finding out whether these come true. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. You can read more on Tim's predictions and his assessment of how he did last year on the website or our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, we look ahead at the top museum openings and exhibitions of the year. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The British Museum has advertised for its next director. The application pack for the director's post says that prospective applicants must lead a workforce of almost 1,000 people, oversee a positive culture change within the museum and lead a dynamic executive team. The role has a salary of £215,841. But the successful applicant will need to rebuild the battered reputation of the oldest national public museum in the world following a string of controversies culminating in last year's theft scandal. In an introductory letter included in the 
application document, the chair of the museum's trustees, the former UK Chancellor George Osborne, admits that the institution has had a tough year because of scrutiny relating to the thefts and accepts that it's at the centre of, quote, global conversations about the validity of so-called universal museums. But he also states that the museum is feeling remarkably strong and ready for change, citing the digitisation of the museum's collection and the next steps in its master plan, including building a new energy centre and launching an architectural competition to redesign and redisplay a third of its gallery spaces. The deadline for applications for the role is the 26th of January. The long-awaited trial between Dmitry Rybolovlev, the billionaire Russian collector, and Sotheby's auction house began on Monday in a Manhattan district courtroom. It marks the next phase of Rybolovlev's decade-long legal campaign to recover hundreds of millions of dollars from more than $2 billion worth of acquisitions he made through the Swiss dealer Yves Bouvier. The current trial stems from a 2018 civil lawsuit alleging that the auction house materially assisted the largest art fraud in history, with Rybolovlev reportedly overpaying by more than $1 billion for 38 works acquired via Bouvier from 2003 to 2014. The complaint alleges that Sotheby's aided and abetted Bouvier by supplying him with appraisals and other information used to inflate the sale prices in multiple deals. The auction house has consistently argued that it had, quote, a lack of any knowledge about any representations or misrepresentations Yves Bouvier made to Dmitry Rybolovlev or his affiliates, be it lying about pricing, potentially falsifying negotiations or other potential misdeeds. The trial is expected to last between two and seven weeks unless Rybolovlev and Sotheby's settle out of court. Police in Arizona in the US interrupted a heist at the American Fine Art Gallery in the city of Scottsdale on the 7th of January and apprehended the would-be thief on the building's roof. The suspect, Harpeet Singh, who apparently travelled from California to undertake the theft, scattered stolen works on nearby rooftops before being located by a police drone and apprehended. The burglary began around 5.45am local time, triggering an alarm system that led to an American Fine Art employee inspecting the premises. Upon arrival, the employee noticed several missing works and the sound of an intruder on a phone call in the gallery office. Police arrived at the gallery shortly thereafter and established a perimeter around the building before arresting Singh on the roof and recovering seven artworks taken from the gallery. The works, which included pieces by Andy Warhol and Pablo Picasso, were collectively valued at $250,000. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. Now, in my review of the best exhibitions of 2023 for the art newspaper, I wrote that I doubt that there'll be many better years in my lifetime in terms of exhibitions. So how does 2024 match up? I spoke to Gareth Harris, our chief contributing editor, and Jane Morris, one of our editors at large, to pick out at least some of the big events across the year. The full details of the dates and venues of all the shows we discuss are in our magazine, The Year Ahead, and in the information accompanying this episode, wherever you're listening. Gareth and Jane, it's so nice to gather with you to go through the year ahead. And my word, we have a big year ahead. There's so much to talk about. So let's get straight on with it. We're going to begin by talking about biennials. There is no doubt what the big event of the year is, Jane. It's the Venice Biennale. Yes, the Venice Biennale, uh, this year curated by Adriano Pedroza, who is the artistic director of MASP. I think most of us call it MASP. It's the Musée d'Arte de Sao Paulo with lots of other things after it. So the main contemporary art museum in Sao Paulo, which architecture fans will know because of its fabulous Lina Bobardi building. Yeah, extraordinary building. And it's being updated this year. That's an aside. It is. It's had a large extension being dug out underneath it, I think. Mm, indeed. So Adriano Pedroza is the artistic director of that museum. Yes, and probably best known in London, I guess, because for several years he curated the Spotlight section 
collection at uh, Freeze Masters. But this year, he says he is going to be focusing on, uh, I think think it's called Foreigners Everywhere. Mm. And we are going to be focusing on artists who are Indigenous, outsider artists, self-taught artists, queer artists, and particularly artists who've moved from the South to the North or North to the South. Indeed. Gareth, I was thinking when I saw this title, Foreigners Everywhere, right in the heart of Maloney's Italy. It's a provocation as much as a statement, right? This is absolutely cutting into the heart of the discussion about the nature of identity in Europe right now. So it's a really timely theme, it seems to me. Yeah, I think it is provocative. Um, I think it's it sort of presents lots of firsts. I think Pedro's the first Latin American curator, first from the Southern Hemisphere to curate the Venice Biennale. Yeah, he is. So... We're all waiting to see how political he'll be. As you say, it's an all-encompassing title. Statements online say the edition will be more topical than ever, tapping into economic and socio-political issues through the figure of the outsider. Mm. And as Jane has highlighted, this can mean anything from uh, indigenous to queer to autodidacts. And I think it's going to be an interesting roundup. He also says online he's going to present something called a nucleo storico, gathering works from 20th century Latin America, Africa, the Arab world and Asia. I think this is an interesting thesis. It's quite a detailed statement online. I thought that. Uh, this early, we know quite a lot about it, don't we, Jane? Yeah. yeah, and also in a way, he's been doing quite a lot of prep, which is quite clever in a way, because MASP actually devoted last year and a little bit into this year on uh, focusing on Indigenous histories. I think the next year or this coming year, it's going to be queer histories, but he's done big thematic whole year exhibitions devoted to things like the artists of Brazil. So in a way, he's been kind of using his last two or three years as a run up in prep for this one. Well, I've been stalking his Instagram. And <laughs> Very he good. Is, he does post lots of pictures of his travels. and I think he's giving clues along the way about the sort of thing he might include. So have a look. Not too explicit, but yeah, keep keep looking at the Insta. Indeed. Um, the Nucleo Storico, this, this historic aspect, 20th century artist, it's interesting, he's talking about the Italian diaspora. Mm. Yeah. That's an, an interesting take, isn't it? But we know, I think, that these historical elements can really work well because we've got Cecilia Alemani's most recent Biennale where she did exactly that. She put in these pods, if you like, of, of historic works, which really complemented the contemporary stuff. Oh, it was, it, was a, it was a great sort of feature of the Biennale two years ago. I mean, I suppose the only thing I would say, and again, maybe this fact that he's been doing a bit of a run-up before he's done this show will help, but Cecilia had an extra year or so because of the pandemic, and she said that she wouldn't have really been able to do that historic show without the time. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how he's managed it, but I mean... Fair play to him. And it does sound like it's going to be a really interesting one. I mean, maybe it is, as you say. His programming at the museum is the prep. You yeah, know, I think um, it might to be. To a certain degree. I think um, it might be. It's interesting. He's already announced the Golden Lions. One of them is Anna Maria Maulino. Oh, yeah. And one of them is Nil Yalta, who is a Turkish artist. Anna Maria Maulino is a really interesting figure because, of course, she's Brazilian. So another sort of global South figure. She's also of Italian descent. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to note that he says that these figures embody the show in certain ways. So I think we're going to have a really interesting show about 
the nature of the movement of people, about what artistic identity might be and so on. It, it feels a really rich territory. Of course, the proof will be in the pudding. It's an extraordinarily difficult show to organise. Adriano Paradorosa has never organised anything this big ever, no. so you can you can never know. How. Although, although Istanbul Biennial a few years ago, which yeah, I enjoyed with Jens Hoffmann. Yeah, and to be fair, Cecilia Alemani had never done a show as big as Venice, and I think we all agreed hers was uh, one of the best in several years. Yeah, I do think the statement's interesting about the Global South. You know, modernism was appropriated, devoured and cannibalised in the Global South repeatedly taking on radically new shapes and forms in dialogue with local and indigenous references. I think that's an interesting thing to put forward. Absolutely. And we'll <laughs> find out the artist list at the end of this month. It's 31st of January is the sort of announcement and so on. I don't expect a very commercial group of artists, perhaps. So maybe we won't be seeing quite so many people in sharp navy blue suits hanging around the exhibits. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Just a thought. I mean, he's tapping into something that we'll see across the whole Biennale because Brazil has actually renamed its pavilion. It's now going to be called Hahaupa. I think that's possibly how you say it. And the indigenous artist Glyceria Tupinamba has been selected to represent Brazil and will be shown her work in the renamed pavilion. And much of her work focuses on the revitalisation of the Tupinamba people's culture. Well, there's no doubt indigenous artists are kind of something that a lot of attention is being paid to at the moment, I'd say. I mean, I think we probably first saw it in Documenta 14 uh, and a little bit in the Venice Biennale in 2017. But I noticed that the Fondation Cartier is sponsoring a new First Nations curator in partnership with the Biennale of Sydney. And I mean, a number of other major museums are going down the same line. So I think uh, definitely, definitely one of the trends of 2024. And just to add, there are other pavilions actually, which have Indigenous artists and probably most notably the US pavilion, Gareth. Yeah, and Jeffrey Gibson, who's a Colorado-born, New York-based artist, who's a member of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians and of Cherokee descent. So this is a big deal for America this year. His work mixes traditions, combining techniques from indigenous beading, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that'll be an interesting inclusion as well. Yeah, there's Archie Moore in the Australia Pavilion as well. Uh, Any other pavilions stand out to you, Jane? Well, I think obviously I am really looking forward to the British Pavilion, uh, John Acumfra. And I'm also looking forward to Saudi Arabia. I think Manal Aldawayan could be very interesting. She had a show, I think, at the Guggenheim last year. She's been doing some quite large land art pieces with Desert X. So I'm, I'm keen to see that pavilion. Yeah, she's become a bit of a superstar on the Saudi scene. So it's interesting she was selected. But we'll talk about Saudi a little later. Yeah, and how we will indeed. Boosting the cultural credentials. As ever, there's a bit of political machination already. Gareth, you've been reporting on the Poland Pavilion. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, this has, uh, this has been a little bit controversial in the sense that the artist selected initially to represent Poland, the Venice Biennale, he's been chucked, <laughs> to put it bluntly. His name is Ignaty Kwatos, and he was selected by the previous government, which was the administration led by the Law and Justice Party. So a far-right party, effectively. Yeah, I think fair enough to say far-right. His exhibition proposal, which was called Polish Practice in Tragedy between Germany and Russia, that was initially selected in in an open competition last October, as far as I'm aware. But it all became a little bit complex because the announcement came at a time when Poland was waiting to see what form its next government would take. And as far as I can remember, there was an election on the 15th of October. A new, more centrist coalition government has been elected under Donald Tusk, who we may all remember from the European Union, he's European Council president. And then over Christmas, we all noticed that the Polish Ministry of Culture had issued a statement online 
saying a new group of artists would now be representing Poland, a collective called Open Group. So it looks as if perhaps it was a political decision to remove the original guy, Kwartos. We spoke to him. He told me he considers it an act of censorship. But, you know, Poland's now moving ahead with its second choice. And it shows how the Biennale can get political, I think. And it sort of shows how governments of all persuasions can be not averse to using the arts for whatever political statement they want to make. Absolutely. Um, Briefly, as ever, there will be dozens of what are called collateral exhibitions. I've never quite understood why they're called collateral exhibitions anyway. Well, there are official collaterals which are connected in some way to the Biennale. They have the kind of official imprimatur of the Biennale. This year, I don't think many of the very big exhibitions are are actually official collaterals. There you go. Interesting. Jane always uh, knows this stuff. Um, <laughs> the, the the ones that stand out to me so far, there will be many, many more announced in the coming months, of course. The Francois Pinot institutions are always worthy of attention and absolutely this year. Pierre Huig at the Punta della Dogana. Pierre Huig is one of the great artists working today, in my opinion. Absolutely extraordinary artist. He always does something very site-specific and therefore there is very little information about that. In the Palato Grassi, the other Pinot Museum, there is uh, Judy Meritu, who, oh, again, yeah. one of my absolute favourite oh, yeah, artists no, I'm working really today. To that, yeah. 50 works, we're told, but wow. also really interesting. She, she's so collaborative, and I'm told that the show will also include works by Tasta Dean, by Nairi Bergramian, who Judy Meritu has had this really productive relationship with in recent years. And then also people like David Hammonds will feature. So. That sounds that great. Looks, that sounds great. Mm. Both of those, by the way, are opening in March ahead of the Biennale, which is a very good marketing idea by Pino people. Then the other exhibitions, of course, the Academia has always has really landmark shows in the middle of the, the Biennale. This year it's Willem de Kooning mm. in Italy, which is going to be extraordinary. He didn't spend a huge amount of time in Italy, but he did have two very productive periods. In 1959 and 1969, he visited Italy and made very, very bold works in response first on paper and then and then sculpture and that that show will focus on them so has that phase been well documented or is it it's not actually that well documented but for instance the pastoral landscapes were informed by his trip to italy and the pastoral landscapes are, are to my mind the greatest of all mm. de kooning's works there's also from my own point of view a very exciting show at the peggy guggenheim collection which is the jean cocteau show juggler's revenge cocteau's a, a very marmite artist an artist <laughs> who i love many people hate he had extremely dodgy activities during the Second World War, which which obviously mean his reputation suffers relentlessly, and so it should in certain ways, but I, I'm really excited about that show. And it sort of carries on there, that they've been sort of doing a theme, haven't they, recently, of like major exhibitions devoted to people connected with surrealism, and I think that's continuing that theme. Indeed it is. Now, another major show which always seems to be a talking point and prompts all sorts of uh, ripples through the American art scene is the Whitney Biennial. Jane, this year, we don't know a huge amount about it yet, do we? No, we can probably make a few guesses. So it's being curated by two curators from very different generations. Chrissy Isles, very, very well-known Whitney uh, curator. Uh, She's been at the Whitney, I think, since the mid-1990s, 1997, and she's curated the Biennial twice before. She is collaborating with Meg on Lee. She's a curator in her 30s who was at the Underground Museum in LA. She's a specialist in black film and video and looking at the other curators they've brought on board and also given the sort of known interests of those two curators, I think we could probably uh, anticipate a lot of sound, film and performance and that does indeed seem to be 
the case. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that they've got five, five uh, film additional. and video curators. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, they are placing a lot of emphasis on live performance. The statement I saw. Yeah, it looks like it. And the, they're questioning the porousness of boundaries and identities. But the five they've taken on are really quite interesting, as you say. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but the Canadian Inuk artist, Asinajak, she was part of the curatorial team that represented Canada, the 58th Venice Biennale. But I think they, they've got the film, they've got the, yeah, the performance. It seems to be quite a fluid interpretation of what the Biennale could be. I think the Whitney Biennial has never really gone down that road? Well, I suppose, I mean, the Whitney is always quite cutting edge, isn't it? I mean, the Whitney is basically a cutting edge survey, usually of what's happening amongst contemporary artists in the US. So I don't know, we won't know till it gets much closer to the time, but it definitely looks like one to see. One thing they have said, though, is that the film and video programme will will be available online. I think that's a really important point, because I think all of us have been to shows where there's lots of very important film and video work. But by the time you get to up to 10 artists, you're talking about hours worth of material. The idea of making it available online seems to me to be extremely astute, apart from anything else. And that seems to be, again, something that some of the big American institutions are doing more and more. And I think it really is an ideal thing because it allows the rest of us to watch a lot of it sort of at our own leisure and it's it's more realistic really it's good from an art historical perspective yeah Jane, it's not quite a biennial, but we have another edition of PSTR, which was called Pacific Standard Time. And I think I will probably always think of it as Pacific (laughs) Standard Time. Basically, this is a Getty-supported programme. I think the first one kicked off in 2011, and it focused on the post-war art of California, 1945 to 1980. And it seems hard to think now that the art of California would need a sort of push like that. But there was very much a feeling about 10, 15 years ago that the art scene of Los Angeles and Southern California was not anything like the kind of profile it has now. And I think this Getty exhibition really helped it. Basically, the Getty provides funding to, I guess, we'd call them sort of group of willing museums, which this year has expanded to, I think, about 50 or 60 venues. So it's more like a festival than a biennial, right? Well, it is lots of exhibitions. I mean, I suppose it's a biennial, well, a five-year quinquennial, whatever. The the timings are a bit odd. There was 2011. The next one was 2017, I think, um, which was um, focusing on Latin American and Latino art. It's a biennial if you don't mind lots and lots and lots of driving. Uh, And I'm guessing if you're American and you're used to the kind of long drives that they think of as normal, it is. For the rest of us, I guess there's little chance you'd be able to see all of it. So, yeah, I suppose a festival is not a bad way of putting it. But they are large, serious exhibitions. So this year it's going to focus on the relationship between art and science, which seems really kind of interesting to me. Rather broad definition of that. Well, it is, it is, yeah. But then what Biennale doesn't have a very broad definition. I mean, we've had many jokes in the past about exhibition titles and exhibition concepts. So this one apparently ranges from ancient cosmologies to indigenous sci-fi, environmental justice, uh, artificial intelligence. And it seems the kind of obligatory Olafur Eliasson show at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles. I'm sure it'll be good. Inspired by the Joseph Boyce 7000 Oaks project. So they're going to replant trees or plant trees 
in public spaces around LA. I think that could be quite impressive. Yeah, and the Getty is going to do a major historical exhibition focusing on experiments in art and technology, the famous group set up by Robert Rauschenberg and Robert Whitman with some of the engineers from the Bell Laboratories. So that's basically very early digital art, 1960s to the 1970s. Sounds great. Gareth, you're going to tell us a bit more about what the hell is going on in Istanbul, because this biennial long before it's opened, has been the subject of enormous controversy. Can you summarise it very briefly? I'll have a go. Um, It's worth saying that our colleague Christina Ruiz first reported this last year. And basically, in February, um, the Istanbul Biennial's advisory board unanimously chose the Turkish curator Defne Ayas as the best candidate to curate the next biennial, which takes place this year in September. It's the 18th edition. I mean, she's a very well-known international curator. She was on the podcast not too long ago. But the Istanbul Foundation for Culture and Arts, which oversees the biennial generally, rejected the board's recommendation and instead appointed Ivana Blazek, the former director of the Whitechapel Gallery in London. What's a little bit delicate is that at the time of her selection, Blazek was a serving member of the advisory panel tasked with choosing a curator for the 2024 biennial. I hope you understood that. Yeah. So did, so did, so did she choose Daphne Ayas? I think that's what's implied, yes. Yeah, I think she did. Mm. And then when Christina unravelled this a little further... She, she sort of found out that some critics believed that, that Ayas was judged a little bit too risky as a curator choice. And they cite her curation of an exhibition by Sarkis for the Turkish Pavilion at the 2015 Venice Biennale, which makes a passing reference to the Armenian genocide. So again, it's a delicate political stroke art issue. Since then, uh, there's been a few different developments. The general director at the Istanbul Biennial, BJ Ore, she stood down at Christmas. A new director was uh, announced this week. So it looks as if it's all going ahead under Ivana Blazwick's leadership this, this September. But again, it's another example, I suppose, like the Poland Pavilion of how politics and art get a little too convoluted. You feel for the artists a bit, Jane, in the sense that, you know, they are being selected by the curator and suddenly they've become sort of framed within a political structure if you like. Yeah I mean it's it's a tricky one isn't it and I, I mean I, I do wonder whether did they sort of lie heavily on Ivana to like pick up the baton or, or mm. what happened there? Yeah it's a really curious one. And Gareth there's also a biennial in fact a couple of things happening in Saudi Arabia. We've talked a lot about Saudi Arabia on this podcast in the last few months in fact. What do we know about these events? As we have said, Saudi Arabia continues to be an art world hot topic. There are a few key events taking place this year. The third edition of Desert X Alula, which is a contemporary art exhibition, mainly mainly sculptural, will take place in the vast northwest region of Saudi Arabia, Alula. It's due to launch the 9th of February, and again, it puts the spotlight on on the Middle Eastern states, I guess you could say, turbocharged cultural development. Saudi Arabia has a concerning record on human rights, but it continues to transform its image. It recently won the bid for World Expo 2030. The Desert X Biennial launched in Coachella, California, 2017. This is the third edition organised by two curators, Maya El Khalil and Marcello Dantas, and the theme is In the Presence of Absence. And I'm not 100% sure what that might be, but El Khalil explained it to me as 
and we approached the perspective of how can we learn from that landscape, what is hidden, how can you really engage with forces that are beyond our perspective. That's exactly one of those titles that we were talking about. It can be interpreted in any which way. Um, uh, tell us about the Diria Biennial. Diria Biennale is really interesting. This is the second edition. It'll be led by the gym-born curator Utameta Bauer. I went to the first one in 2021, curated by Philip Tenari. Mm. I have to say it was excellent thematically. It focused on Saudi artists of the 1990s and 2000s. Tenari drew parallels with Chinese practitioners from the 1970s. Really interesting comparisons. He did it really well. Utameta Bauer's title for the next Biennale, Diria Biennale, is called After Rain. And she told me it's going to feature 92 artists from 43 countries she explained the title to me, saying, if you live in an oasis when the desert, if it's raining, it immediately has an impact because nature is so ready for it for every drop of water. It's this moment of being nurtured, and for me it's also a moment of hope. And there are some interesting collaborations. Ahmed Matt of Saudi Arabia will be teaming up with the Berlin-based photographer Amin Linka, and they're collaborating on a really interesting project, documenting so-called... Saudi futurism since the 1940s. And they've actually gone into the archives of the petroleum conglomerate, Aramco. So I think that crossover into industry, that could be an interesting uh, discovery. I mean, there's, there's no doubt these various cultural projects are extremely well funded. I mean, Al Aula is a massive project. Yeah. Wadi Al Fan is part of it, and that's like a 65 kilometre stretch of the desert. They're going to be, I think, launching five major installations, which again has involved Ivana Blaswick. But the real issue, isn't it, is that it is directly government funded in a way that isn't normal in the rest of, let's say, Europe, for example. Mm. The chain goes right up to the royal family. And that's really what's causing a lot of the uh, the question marks, isn't it, Gareth? Well, yeah, I guess that approach is called top down, I suppose, is it? When it comes directly from the government, when everything leads back to the government. This has been examined in some detail by Rebecca Proctor and Alial Sanusi in the recent Hot Topics book published by Land Humphreys. But at what point will there be a clash with the government in the sense that, you know, when will it displease those in authority? That moment's not yet really arrived. It's all bubbling along quite nicely. People are talking about censorship, but in very veiled terms. That's definitely a question of watch this space, and I'm sure Gareth will be reporting on that very much in 2024. Um, OK, we're going to talk about museums very briefly. Jane, the big museum project of the year is the Frick reopening in New York. Tell us more. Yeah, certainly one of them. I mean, this is very interesting. The Frick is obviously a very beautiful early 1900s mansion. It was the home of Henry Clay Frick. It's a beautiful neoclassical mansion. It's probably most famous for the beautiful pond <laughs> inside. It has been quite controversial, this um, renovation. There have been plans ever since 2001 to try to extend the museum. There was a firm in 2014 that had a plan that would have got rid of the garden and that sort of hit a whole load of protests and um, controversy. So this version is being done by Annabel Seldorf and architectural historians seem much happier about it. 
It increases the size of the museum by about 10%. There will be extra galleries and exhibition space, auditorium, conservation labs and so forth. It's cost nearly $200 million, so it's expensive. But I think because it's such a wonderful collection and such a wonderful building, I think people will be excited to see this one. I mean, I suppose the only possibly, perhaps not exactly sad is the right word, but I think it's been very interesting what the Frick has been doing while they have been camped out in the Marcel Breuer building that used to be the home of the Whitney and will soon be the new home of Sotheby's because it's allowed the curators there to sort of experiment with their classic historic collection. I mean, the collection is full of, you know, masterpieces by Monet and Rembrandt and El Greco and so forth. But they've actually been doing some sort of contemporary shows as well. Most recently, the uh, Barclay Hendricks Mm. show. So I think it's given them a bit of freedom that perhaps they didn't have before and I think I don't know what you think Ben I think it's been quite exciting what they've been doing definitely and uh, but but the the converse to that is that there will be a lot of people who very much love the old frick true I'm going to be intrigued traditionalist yes yeah there'll be people who will be wandering into the new frick and with you know sort of magnifying glass looking at what's so different and how it's lost all its old romance I don't know what you think Gareth it sounds like a quite radical redevelopment. I think the main thing they're going to do is open the mansion to visitors on the second floor, I think. So it gives them 15 more rooms upstairs to show the collection. Right. But that's a good thing, it I Sounds think. like a great thing. Expanding, indeed, yeah. spatially. And, and I suppose Annabel <laughs> Seldorf does have a track record of sensitive renovations of historic buildings. She seems to be museum's favourite architect at the moment, although her National Gallery... Uh, project is deeply controversial but we won't focus on that because that's a a little way away the grand egyptian museum i'm sure that in 2050 i'm going to be sitting here saying to you jane the grand egyptian museum is finally (laughs) going to open And we're still really mystified about what exactly is causing the hold-up. I mean, there is a rumour that there might be a soft opening in February and actually reopen. the actual opening will be May. I no longer know what to believe. We were kind of promised it would definitely open last year and it definitely didn't. I mean, it's a bit of a running joke. It's appeared in our last five or six year ahead supplements. Museum openings for the year. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, it's an enormous project. We all want to see it, don't we? Oh. I mean, we're all eagerly anticipating it, but goodness knows what the hold-up is. There will be people who know. If you know, drop some <laughs> of the journalists at the art newspaper it's, a line. We've yeah. been trying to find out for some time. <laughs> I mean, it will be staggering. I think we wrote in 2022 that it's the size of a major airport terminal. Yeah. And that made me think about the whole thing. And, of course, there's going to be... Really important stuff on display. I think the collection of 5,000 relics from the tomb of Tutankhamun will be transferred from the Historic Egyptian Museum, which is yeah. in central Cairo, yeah. and displayed in its entirety. So it's going to be time. extraordinary, but a, maybe it will finally happen in if, 2020. If we ever see it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk about exhibitions. There are sort of loads of anniversaries as ever, and of course there are loads of exhibitions themed around those anniversaries. One of them is the anniversary of the first manifesto of surrealism, Jane. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I suppose it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because somehow... 2022 seemed to have turned itself into the year of surrealism, partly because of Venice, partly because of the massive exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum and Tate, and just general interest in the market and lots of sort of contemporary artists who are influenced by surrealism. In a way, it almost feels like the the anniversary has happened. However, I think when we get to it, there is a very large exhibition being staged jointly by the Beaux-Arts, the Royal Museums of Fine Art in Belgium, 
and the Pompidou in Paris. It's called Imagine 100 Years of International Surrealism and it is going to be filled with all the greatest hits. Now, I can see Gareth looking at me. Is that name changing? Because the name keeps shifting around. (laughs) No, no, my first thought was what's new, but, you know, what will be... Well, you know, I think what's new is that each of the venues, actually, because it begins in... Brussels, Brussels, moves to Paris, then it goes to Hamburg and Madrid and finally ends up in Philadelphia. Delphia, yeah. And each of the five venues are bringing their own take to surrealism. Now, surrealism, right from its start, was framed by all its protagonists as a shape-shifting movement. And I think it's really important to say that surrealism is many, many things, despite its very sort of tight tenets as established in this manifesto by André Breton. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, like, for instance, in Belgium, it's being linked to symbolism. And I would have thought symbolism and surrealism, they should be having a battle in that museum rather than a kind of complementary display, Jane. Yeah, no, I think, but again, I think that is a very, potentially very interesting take on it. I mean, I think there is a definite air of blockbuster around this one, isn't there? I mean, it's the Pompidou's, is it its last exhibition before it shuts? 2025, the Pompidou closes. Yes, it is. I think it is the last exhibition. Yeah, because yeah, this one runs into 2025, doesn't it, before it goes on its international tour. Anyway, the public always loves surrealist shows, so I'm sure this will be a big success. And I, I really advise everybody who is at all interested to read the manifesto of surrealism, that first manifesto. It's one of the most readable manifestos I know of. Breton, as ever, deeply controversial, but it, it has that list of the sort of antecedents of, of surrealism. It has a wonderful kind of fantasy about surrealism as a half-ruined castle, which... You know, Picasso's lurking in the grounds and so on. It's a, it's a great manifesto, so I do advise you do read it. Another anniversary, Jane, the first ever Impressionist exhibition was 150 years ago and the Musée d'Orsay and the National Gallery of Art in Washington are doing a show. Yes, it's called Paris 1874, Inventing Impressionism. And I think it sounds as if the, the sort of main concept of the show is to try to give a sense of how exciting Impressionism was, which, as we all know, is a real challenge these days. We're very familiar with the image We're very familiar with the techniques. So the idea, I gather, is that they are going to juxtapose lots of work that were in the salon that year. Of course, the whole point of this is that these artists set themselves against the salon and set up their own exhibition. So basically, they're going to contrast the two, which will hopefully give viewers more of a sense of how radical impressionism was they also said that i mean there were either 30 or 31 uh, there seems to be a bit of a debate about that but the museum also says 31 artists in the original exhibition and i'm guessing that they must be correct so i think one of the other things will be to show the fact that it's not just the names that we all know so monet renoir degas morisot etc there were other artists who were less well known who were in this first exhibition 15th of april 1874 famously Felix Nader's top floor flat so uh, in Paris. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, that's another quite clearly blockbustery show, but it, do, it does sound like it'll be interesting. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of virtual reality, apparently. 45-minute virtual reality immersive trip. Not so uh, sure about that. I think <laughs> is that so. taking you back to that first exhibition? This you? is according to The Observer about two weeks ago. It'll take you back to the first exhibition in 1874. There's going to be a VR recreation of the original studio, apparently, uh, which was, I think, at Boulevard des Capuchines. There you go. That's slightly, and I'm not saying this to be um, sort of Luddite, that slightly just makes me shudder in terms of the actual logistics of the exhibition because, as we all know, the minute you put sort of VR experiences in the middle, the queues just get vast. So let's see how they handle that, if that's the case. And I think what's also interesting is the Musée d'Orsay 
as far as I understand, they, they lend in paintings from the collection to 34 museums across France to mark the 150th anniversary of Impressionism. So Monet, Manet, Van Gogh, Cézanne, Renoir, they're all going to be going to these French museums. I think, I think they also want to try and put it in the context of a very turbulent time in Paris, which I think is interesting, because, again, I think we are probably all slightly guilty sometimes of seeing the paintings and some of them as a bit chocolate boxy. Yeah. And they want to put it in the kind of context of the end of the Franco-Prussian War, the Paris Commune. So they want to get the impression that this was a turbulent, politically charged time and that some of these artists played into that. They were also incredibly unsuccessful, which I think is Absolutely. interesting. And the people that were successful were making these extraordinary, grand machine paintings that, that now look like absolute howlers. So, so it's the gonna, salon. The, yeah, yeah, the salon paintings. They, they are some of the worst paintings in the Musée d'Orsay <laughs> that are being brought out for this show. So, yeah, that would be an interesting one. Another anniversary is the National Gallery's 200th anniversary at National Gallery in London. The landmark show for that is a Van Gogh show, Jane. Yeah, I mean, are we feeling the blockbusters here, everyone? <laughs> I mean, so this is apparently the first time the National Gallery has done a Van Gogh show. I suppose Van Gogh runs just up to the end of the kind of turning point in their collection, doesn't it, before everything goes to the Tate. So it's going to be called Van Gogh Poet and Lovers. I think that Martin Bailey, of course, our expert on Van Gogh, has written quite a lot about this and uh, uh, interested readers can find out a little bit more about why the show is being called what it is. But basically it's going to focus on a period 1888 to 1890. So a very narrow sort of period, but a very, very productive period, wasn't it? Um, Absolutely. Ben in it's Van Gogh's life. It's in Arles and, and Saint-Rémy, so, so the, the Yellow House and then the, exactly. the asylum. And it's yep. focusing on how he interpreted those spaces in and around those buildings and, and the kind of landscapes around. Yeah, and the Yellow House had a public garden very near it, which he he made a lot of paintings of. And then the asylum also had a very overgrown garden. So I think there's going to be a lot of landscape imagery. And we think the poets and lovers, partly it's to do with some of the people he saw in the garden, but other reasons as well. And also he imagined in the garden. So actual poets and, and secluded lovers and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's the anniversary, in fact, of course, of the National Gallery buying sunflowers, probably one of its most famous paintings, and also the Van Gogh chair which is the pair to Paul Gauguin's chair which is in Amsterdam so they'll be celebrating that acquisition of the sunflowers for £1,300 which was obviously a lot of money at the time in 1924 but still uh, probably one of their most famous works now. While we're on the subject of Van Gogh Jane there's this really interesting show at the Van Gogh Museum which pairs Van Gogh with Matthew Wong the artist who was very young when he died in 2019. Yeah I mean he also had mental health problems like Van Gogh and he he didn't actually start painting I think until he was 27 in 2011. I mean I think there are very obvious parallels between his work and Van Gogh's. It's interesting that the Van Gogh Museum has decided to do this. Yeah I mean I think definitely an interesting one if you happen to be a Matthew Wong fan or a Van Gogh fan or popping over to Amsterdam. A radical pair in that. It is, yeah, I think, but also very instructive. There was a really sort of tragic but beautiful quote from Matthew Wong where he said of Van Gogh, I see myself in him, the impossibility of belonging in this world. You know, that's that's testament to a bit of curating which has identified these two figures as sort of kindred spirits across time. So I think that would be interesting. And I suppose, I mean, the Van Gogh Museum needs to keep finding new ways of looking at, at Van Gogh. So this is an interesting one, I think. Indeed. The Caspar David Friedrich anniversary, 250th anniversary, has actually already begun. It began just before Christmas, actually, in Hamburg at the Kunsthalle. And there are other exhibitions. Gareth? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that as the 250th anniversary of the birthday approaches, he's being reassessed. I mean, he was always the student favourite, I suppose, the master of German romanticism. His reputation's gone very up and down, though, hasn't it? I mean, he was hugely famous early in his career. He died in poverty. Loved by Hitler. Yeah, that's always been a bit of a problem. His reputation kind of really slumped, didn't it? And mm. then the beginning of the 20th century, people began to get interested in it. The fact that Hitler liked it, I mean, poor Caspar David Friedrichs. Anyway, that didn't help. And it wasn't really until the 70s, really, that his reputation started to be revived. Because By there was a big Tate show, I think, mm. in 72. So I think that was the start of the rehabilitation, actually. Right. It's really interesting that these shows that, that, that are particular landmarks, there's actually a whole website dedicated, which is cdfriedrich.de, so a whole series of celebrations, but three really major shows. The one that's open at Hamburg introduces him and, and also introduces contemporary artists. Right. There's another one in Berlin, which is much more about his reputation and, and how it fell away and he was rediscovered later. And then the one that's going to be in Dresden later in the year brings him together with the old master. So you have kind of Friedrich in 360 in those exhibitions. You do. I mean, I think it's interesting that Hamburg is doing the contemporary comparison. There's some big names in there. I think Olafur Eliasson, Kehinder yep. Wiley, yeah. Julian Charrier. Yeah. So those kind of contemporary parallels will be interesting, as we say, for an artist who seems to be coming back into favour. Gareth, you wanted to talk about Arte Povera at the Bourse de Commerce in Paris. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be a must-see, in mm. a way. Uh, and again, another student favourite, I suppose. It's one of those movements that's fallen slightly out of favour. Do you agree, Jane, or not? Yeah, I th no, I think that's right. It feels like there was a bit of a resurgence of interest maybe 10 years ago, but right. hasn't been so much lately, I don't think. There were some exhibitions, I think, in 2019, but I don't feel like there's been a really big exhibition for some time. No, and I think the curator's a key choice. It's Karolin Christoph Bakardiev, who was the director of the Castello di Rivoli in Turin, which is actually an excellent museum, mm. I think. And I spoke to her, and she's got a really interesting thesis. She said the show will be 90% arte povera and 10% what came before and after. So she says she's going to focus on precursors to, to the movement. Looking back at the Etruscans, I'm going back to where this worldview comes from, she said. It all links to the Mediterranean idea of flow and the sense of non-linear development. So I think that's an interesting concept. She's going to bring together works by 13 artists, the usual suspects, Giovanni Anselmo, who sadly died late last year, Yanis Kunelis, Giulio Paolini. And she said something else to me. She said, in a sense, these artists also invented installation art, as we always don't know where the boundary of the work is, a concept which moved Western art forward and resonates globally today. And that really made me think about contemporary art. I honestly think their influence is probably bigger than any art movement of the 20th century. I can see them everywhere, not just in the, the installation nature, but also the materiality that you know, literally poor materials and so on. It's, it's just everywhere. It's intriguing that David Hammonds, who's yep. very well represented in Pino's collection, so therefore very advantageous to the Bourse de Commerce, is going to be shown alongside them. I, I like that idea, that yeah. you'll see them in, in a broader international context. Yeah, Christoph Bakodjev says she's going to connect David Hammonds to Yanis Kunelis. It's right. going to be fascinating, I think. Yeah, and she is a curator, I think, who does draw very interesting connections. She she's got very sort of unusual approach, actually, uh, in, in many ways, as anyone who saw the 2012 documenter will know. So it's certainly not going to be a standard 
textbook take on Art of and I think that'll be definitely exactly. worth seeing. Um, while we're on the subject of Paris, I'll just briefly tell you about a couple of shows at the Pompidou. Actually, the Pompidou is going out with a bang ahead of its closure for five years. I mean, I, I feel I already a sort of sense of being bereft for five years without a Pompidou to go to. It's, yeah. it's a major, major uh, renovation of the museum, which really needs it by all accounts. But still, it's going to be horrible when the Pompidou is closed for five years. Yeah, it does the, leave a massive hole, doesn't it? It does, it really does, yeah. The shows that I want to tell you about are Brancusi, wonderful looking retrospective based all around that amazing studio, which is in the annex, sort of directly opposite That's the right. Pompidou. Again, it's interestingly going to have works by the sort of antecedents to his work so we're going to see historic art we're going to see a sort of folk-ish uh, Romanian art we're going to see Rodin and Gauguin and so on as well as Brancusi there's this new relationship that the Pompidou and the Louvre have where they're lending works which will obviously be interesting in the context of the Pompidou being closed in the future then they're kind of Olympics show because remember that it's the Paris Olympics in the summer the Olympic show is comics and it's this is going to be one of those Pompidou extravaganzas. I love it when the Pompidou does this, where basically they say we are a multidisciplinary organisation look at what we can do and it's going to be on every level, it's going to be in the library, it's going to be in the museum, it's going to be in the exhibition galleries, there's going to be performances on the ground floor, so on. This is the Pompidou in excelsis. This is pure (laughs) Pompidou and I love it that they're going out with that much of a bang because of course the Surrealism show follows it. Expect a very long podcast on the subject. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds quirky is the word. It does and I think you know you have to say graphic novels have grown as a kind of they call it the ninth art I didn't realise that it was the ninth art but that's what the Pompidou is calling it so yeah comics have been growing in stature as a sort of an art form and I think this is really bringing together Asian comics European comics American comics all together okay so we are not going to have time to do all the shows in depth so I'm just going to do a couple of roundups of things that I've noticed in the spring in London we have this really extraordinary moment in May I think where we have a whole host of exhibitions of women artists across time all happening so you've got Yoko Ono at Tate Modern which actually opens in February that's going to be a really amazing show they really are going to town on the early stuff which is hugely underrated she's a really huge artist she was doing cut piece in the 60s years before Marina Abramovich did Rhythmo you know she was a really radical figure that's what Lennon you know saw in Mm. her so you know she's an extraordinary figure and I can't wait for that show then you have Angelica Kaufman at the Royal Academy. We thought this was going to be cancelled in 2020. I we thought th- it was cancelled. But they have they have brought it back. I'm delighted to say they have. She was a founding member of the Royal Academy. She is a great 18th century painter. She actually painted uh, ceiling paintings for the original Royal Academy in Somerset House when it was there, before it moved. That should be really extraordinary. There's a show called Now You See Us, which features Angelica Kaufman, among others, which is all about women artists in Britain between 1520 and 1920. So 400 years of work by women artists a real challenge I think in terms of getting the material from that early part of that period but that is happening that kind of collecting in museums so that's at Tate Britain from May there's also Judy Chicago's first ever institutional show in London in May at the Serpentine North and then another roundup I wanted to do was of textile themed shows so there is this really important show at LACMA in Los Angeles at the moment, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is called Woven Histories, Textiles and Modern Abstraction, curated by Lynn Cook. It will travel to the National Gallery of Art in Washington and then to Ottawa and eventually to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And Lynn Cook's shows are always worth seeing, I think. Yeah, she's a brilliant curator. Mm. Um, And this is 
really, really in-depth looking at textiles from Bauhaus, Annie Albers and um, Gunter Sturzel and all those great artists from that period, then all the way through to Jeffrey Gibson. And, I, you know, Jeffrey Gibson is not just in the US Pavilion this year. He's everywhere. He's also in a show which is called Unravel, The Power and Politics of Textiles in Art. That's at the Barbican. That opens in February. And it really does focus on how textiles are a profound medium for political art, for protest, for the expression of the views of marginalised figures and so on. And it features 50 artists from the 1960s to today, uh, some of the real groundbreakers in the medium of textiles in that period. So Sheila Hicks, Magdalena Abakanovitz, who had that amazing Mm. Tate Modern show recently, Teresa Margoles and Faith Ringgold, among those 50 artists. Extraordinary show by the looks of it. There's going to be a show called Material World Contemporary Artists and Textiles, which is a Hayward Gallery touring exhibition, which means it will be a show happening across Britain in various venues. Not much more detail about that, but I'm told that the themes will be very similar to the Barbican show by the sounds of it. So really looking at textiles as a medium, which is an agent of... Of, of change, of protest, of activism, and so on. That's what I was going to ask you. Why the? Why now? Why is there such a, a raft of te- is textile shows? Is it because they can resonate politically in a way? I think, I think this is the thing: is that it's one of those things where we've seen textiles appearing lots. Haven't yeah, we? we have. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it seems to be something which people are bringing their focus to in various ways, and it seems that curators are suddenly thinking, well, hang on, we should draw all this together. It's it's a thing which you've seen fragmented histories, and now it's like it seems to me to be a really sort of important thing to explore in depth in, in these big group shows. Okay, let's go to the US now. Jane. Well, I'd just like to give a shout out to the Harlem Renaissance and Transatlantic Modernism show that's opening at the Metropolitan Museum in February. It's being billed as the first survey in New York in nearly 40 years. I think the last one was 1987. I think more people, though, have talked about the 1969 show, um, Harlem on My Mind, which was controversial because it included a lot of documentary photography, more than painting and sculpture, and all the curators were white, and I think a lot of artists in Harlem were not even consulted about it. Mm. So this is, I think, probably a corrective exhibition in that it is really going to be focusing on the artists, the painters and the sculptors who emerged in the period immediately after the First World War and I guess running up almost to the Second World War where there was this extraordinary renaissance and cultural explosion in Harlem. A lot of people, I guess, probably think perhaps more of music, you know, and and writers like Langston Hughes and uh, Duke Ellington, but it was an incredibly fertile time for artists as well. And this will be a major exhibition. People like Charles Alston and Augusta Savage. So I think that's one of the most important exhibitions in New York this year. It's really notable to me that Langston Hughes is mentioned to me a hell of a lot on the Abrushwith podcast when artists are talking about the writers they most admire. Langston Hughes appears time and again, not just in the work of somebody like Isaac Julian, mm. who made the film about Langston Hughes, but also just very widely. Langston Hughes is a, a real artist's poet. So it's interesting. That, that that extraordinary milieu around him is being explored again in depth. Also at the Met, that's in February, the, the show in the autumn focuses on Siena. So very briefly, you know, that extraordinary flowering in Siena in the early 14th mm-hmm. century, 1300 to 1350. Some of the most beautiful paintings ever, I think. Duccio, Simone Martini, the Lorenzetti, some of the most extraordinary painters on that cusp between the Gothic 
and the Renaissance. I think that will be a very beautiful show. I'm told that all the remaining panels of the predella from Duccio's Maestà are going to be reassembled in one space for the first time. And that's a Met show. I mean, the National Gallery did a big show, didn't they, a few years ago? Indeed, and I think this one is travelling to the National Gallery later. Oh, so, yes, okay. so, Yeah, so it should be pretty amazing. Also in New York, the Museum of Modern Art has three shows by women artists in the spring. Joan Jonas, Good Night, Good Morning in March, which is a survey, the most comprehensive survey of Joan Jonas's work in the States so far. One of the great artists working today, I think, in video, in performance, in drawing, just a, a fantastic artist. Latoya Ruby Fraser, an activist mm. artist. Yeah, that would be very interesting. I saw those Flint, Michigan photographs, the work that she did around that community that had poisoned water because of industrial corruption and so on. And those photographs are so powerful and that should be an extraordinary show. And then Kitta Kolvitz, the first ever New York survey, 120 works, prints and drawings, obviously mostly because that was her primary mm. medium, also sculpture, of course. But that should be an astonishing show. And indeed, there are lots of Ketakolvich shows. There's no anniversary, but there are three Ketakolvich shows in 2024. In America? No, one in America. Then we've got the Stadel Museum in Frankfurt in March and the SMK, National Gallery of Art, in Denmark in Copenhagen in November. I wonder what's driven that. And they're not the same show, no. Not the same show. She does seem to be an artist who lots of artists are turning to. That's true, and mm. we've seen a lot of her work in Biennales and the like, haven't we? So Indeed. And, and indeed, this is a prompt for me to tell you about another sort of theme of 2024, which is a whole series of shows by expressionists. So, first of all, we have The Anxious Eye, which is a show at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. That basically focuses mostly on the collection. It is a show which involves contemporary artists again. So lots of this kind of journeying across time within shows, bringing historic movements into connection with uh, contemporary art. And I think it features artists like Nicole Eisenman and Rashid Johnson. So that will be an interesting show. The big show of expressionism in, in London is Kandinsky Munter and the Blue Rider. And I think this is an interesting moment because I think a Blue Rider show, the expressionist movement, the Blue Rider, would have been called Kandinsky, Mark and the Blue Rider about 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. I don't think Gabriele Munter would have been in the title in the same way, but Take Modern, to its credit, is saying, actually, Gabriele Munter is a great artist who founded that movement with Kandinsky and, and the others and is a really landmark figure in expressionism. And so Munter's photographs and paintings will feature. That should be an amazing show. There is also a Gabriele Munter survey at the Tyson Borna Mesa in Madrid later in the year. There's a scholarly reassessment then of... Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, exactly. And she was in that Making Modernism show at the Royal Academy, which was a great show recently. Um, So I think there is a reassessment of expressionism going on. There's also an Eric Heckel show, for instance, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Ghent. So in a way, expressionism has somewhat fallen away from the kind of canonical modernism that seemed to be really preoccupying artists and museums in recent years. Maybe this is a, a moment for reassessment. Yeah, maybe. Very good spot, Ben. Very good spot seeing that group, yeah. I think that's it. This seems a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a very busy year by the looks of it. Indeed it is. Well, Gareth and Jane, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
As I said, you can get full details of the events we discussed in the information accompanying this episode. And that's it for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tim, Gareth and Jane. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>